The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Monday edition of PFTPM. She's Shereen Williams. I'm Mike Florio. We're here for the next hour. Things to discuss coming out of a very busy Sunday. A Monday night that at one point had two games, but is down to one. Shereen, we were almost competing with Broncos Patriots, although next week we'll be competing with Chiefs Bills, barring further major surgery to the NFL schedule. The 5 o'clock start next Monday of the Thursday night game that became a Monday night game. But we're still available on demand. People can watch us when we're not live, but we are live on Peacock. And how are you doing on this fine Monday, October the 12th. I'm fantastic. And the NFL knew better than to come against us, Mike. We are a tough opponent. Yeah, I mean, you, you, can, you can bring Bill's Chiefs because those are two great teams. You bring Broncos Patriots NFL, you may actually see <laughs> the, the loss in eyeballs because under those circumstances, football fans may actually choose people talking about football than actually watching the Denver Broncos play the Patriots. Although by Sunday, maybe the Broncos will have Drew Locke back and they'll have a better chance to actually win the game. The Patriots undoubtedly will have Cam Newton back and may have Stephon Gilmore back by then as well. But let's get to a team right out of the gates that will not have its quarterback on the field again this year. And who knows what the future will hold. Dak Prescott, yesterday, not long before we went on air on Football Night in America, and the air was just sucked out of the room. Everyone involved with the show felt punched in the stomach when we saw the gruesome Dak Prescott, what turned out to be compound fracture dislocation of the right ankle. And, Shireen, you've covered the Cowboys for a long time. I assume you were watching it as it happened. Walk us through what your emotions were, what your reaction was at the time that, that uh, Dak Prescott went down. Yeah, Mike, I've covered so many of these, and, and I did participate on the conference calls with Mike McCarthy and Andy Dalton after the Cowboys victory that felt like a loss, and that's exactly what it felt like. But you just remember all of these that Tony Romo ta- took and, and went out of the game, but this was just chilling. I mean, I still have chills now. It was just horrifying, and I don't want to see the video of that again. It was just gruesome. A gruesome injury is probably the best way to put it and you just feel so bad for Dak I mean he's one of the good guys in this league and if you ever get to meet him to get to know him he he really truly truly you you will root for him because uh he does this league very good and you hate to see good players go out we want to see the best quarterbacks we want to see the best players we want to see the best guys in this game and so the Cowboys won't have him the rest of the season and and his future now I think is very much in doubt about what happens after this year contract wise yeah, and the future is also in doubt short term from a health standpoint. We always hear when NFL players have any type of surgery. First, the surgery was a success. And then before too long after that, the player's actually ahead of schedule in his recovery. And in many cases, that's true because professional athletes tend to heal differently, tend to rebound better to physical adversity than the rest of us. But We still need to pay attention to what happens with Dak Prescott because there are risks. To the extent that the bone did pierce through the skin, that introduces a much higher risk of infection. That's what happened to Alex Smith. There's all sorts of bacteria and other stuff on your skin that gets into your body that way, and it shouldn't be in there. And if they're not careful, and one of the things they did last night in fixing the ankle was to wash the wound thoroughly, Those are all things we need to be concerned about as the days and weeks go by. The healing of the bone. Was there other ligament damage? These are things that they're not going to advertise right out of the gates. These are things that they're going to be very circumspect about. But, Shireen, we've got months before the next wave of decisions need to be made. But those months are going to go by quickly and running parallel to the passage of time, the recovery or lack thereof from Dak Prescott, which is really going to shape the decisions that eventually are made. 
Yeah, no question. And Mike, this is a guy that was still on track despite passing for less than 200 yards before he went out yesterday. He was on track to break the NFL record to pass for almost 6,000 yards. He was passing for almost 400 yards a game and, and just looked outstanding uh, week in and week out. And yes, he had a few turnovers here and there, but you know he was really playing at a high level. And I think if the Cowboys could have turned it around and played better on defense, this is a guy you might have been talking about alongside with Josh Allen and Russell Wilson for, for MVP candidates. And we obviously weren't because of the Cowboys record, but he had just put up some huge yards and, and was earning every bit of that huge contract that he was going to get after the season, of course, playing this year. Uh, under the franchise tag at $31.4 million. So uh, the future, yes, very much in doubt. The Cowboys obviously want him on their team. Stephen Jones reiterated that today. He is our future, and, and the Cowboys still believe in him. But there are going to be questions. I mean, there. how can you not have questions at, at, considering the injury that he just had? Yeah, and uh... – he would have been the offensive player of the year if he'd have stayed on pace. As of last week, we were talking about it with 25% of the season done. He was on pace for 6 7 six, zero. It It was one of those things where I had to do the math three times before my brain would process the extent to which he was on pace to shatter the single-season passing yardage record of 54-77 so, or 57-44. I get those two mixed up for some reason. Regardless, he was on pace to do something that had never been done before, and, that, that's, and that's the first I've even thought of it in the 24 hours since it happened because it's such a tragic turn of events. It really forces you to reconsider everything you think about the NFL, and it's amazing that injuries like this don't happen more often, but when they do, they are devastating. Stephen Jones, the Cowboys, COO, among other titles, discussed earlier today the impact of the injury and what it means for Dak's future with the Dallas Cowboys. That conversation with him, what was that conversation like? You know, how much uh, our prayers are with him, uh, how much we believe in him, how much we're going to miss him, but at the same time, though, that he's going to come back better, stronger, you know, better than ever. Start facing our franchise and to have him and know that he'll overcome, you know, that he'll overcome this. Uh, he's a driven special man. Face of the franchise, Shireen. Here's how he stays the face of the franchise. And it's very simple to identify the options. It's not going to be nearly as simple to pick one, but it's simple to identify them. After the regular season ends, the window reopens on the Cowboys signing Dak to a multi-year deal. Now, nothing stops them from negotiating a long-term deal right now. You just can't sign it until the regular season ends. From then until the deadline for application of the franchise tag, typically late February, sometimes early March, the Cowboys have the exclusive right to talk to Dak with that hammer if they choose to use it up the franchise tag a second time. So option one, sign to a long-term deal before the window closes on using the franchise tag. Option two, use the franchise tag. And I'll include the transition tag here as well because it costs the same. 20% raise over what he made in 2020, regardless of what the salary cap does. Salary cap goes down to 175, doesn't matter. The 20% raise still applies under the CBA. That's $37.68 million or 21.5% of the potential salary cap for next year due to the pandemic if it does drop to $175 million. That's option two. Option three, you don't get a deal done. You don't apply the franchise tag. He becomes a free agent. And maybe that's ultimately what happens. Maybe he hits the open market and other teams don't pursue him with that kind of money that we typically see, free agents. And it's rarely great free agents that get to the open market. It's usually mid-level guys, but they get paid a lot of money because they're the ones available. But maybe he goes to the open market, the Cowboys see what other teams may pay, and then the Cowboys finally give him what he wants. But in the background of all of this is his health. So, again, the options are simple. But the final selection is going to be greatly complicated by how healthy he is or isn't when that franchise tag deadline rolls around next year. And no question, they want to sign him to a long-term deal. They've been wanting to do that for the past two years, and they never could settle on the years. You know, Cowboys wanted five years, Dak wanted four years. He has bet on himself, and 
He's going to end up getting his money. The question is, how much do the Cowboys end up giving him? And do they give in and just go the four-year route? But they've, in my opinion, they've got to sign him to a long-term deal just for cap implications because they can do so many more things and manipulate the cap. He just can't be that big of a percentage of the cap on the franchise tag. So they've got to do something else. And at this point, I think they've got to get him signed to a long-term deal. They've got to roll the dice that he's going to come back and be the same guy that they saw this season, that they saw the season before and the season before that, uh, that he can return to to health. And you do wonder a little bit, Mike, about his uh, running ability uh, with this injury because that was one of his strengths, was his ability to get outside the pocket. Is he going to be the same guy running the football and getting outside the pocket that he was before this injury? Yeah, and you know, that whole four years versus five years, maybe this time around Dak Prescott more amenable to five years because he understands that the Cowboys assuming the risk that maybe in 2021 they're going to be paying a lot of money to a guy who isn't ready to go week one. And maybe Dak Prescott just chooses to wait. It, it can become like a Cam Newton type of a situation very quickly if they can't work out a deal, he becomes a free agent, other teams are reluctant, the Cowboys are reluctant, and Dak just decides, you know what? I'll just wait to sign until I'm healthy, and he may have to take what he can get to prove he's healthy with the Cowboys or someone else before he cashes in with the contract that he has long deserved. So, look, the bottom line is the healing of the ankle, the recovery from the injury is going to drive this discussion. The problem is there are deadlines that are going to emerge before potentially we know how healthy he is or isn't and what track he's on, and that's going to potentially change everything, whether it's the Cowboys or someone else. But there are other teams out there, and I tried to list them earlier today at PFT. Every year, there are teams looking for starting quarterbacks. And you know what? For some of these teams, they've been so desperate for so long to find somebody who can come in and play at a high level. Maybe you just roll the dice. Maybe you pay the money. You bite the bullet. And you deal with the possibility he may not be ready right away. Especially if, let's say you're Washington, and you'd love nothing more than to grab (laughs) the franchise quarterback that your division rival thought they were going to have for the next 15 years. All right. The Atlanta Falcons have moved on both from head coach Dan Quinn and GM Thomas Dimitrov. Usually the firings don't happen on Sundays, especially this early in the season. That's what was surprising about this. Dimitrov being included in the bunch, also a surprise because there was a thought that it was going to be Quinn during the season and Dimitrov after. But you know what, Shereen? Once a team decides they're going to move on, you know, there's different schools of thought here, but I think people are coming around to the idea that once the team knows it's going to make a change, what does anyone gain from basically maintaining a charade for the rest of the season. You're going to be working behind the back of the person you're going to replace, trying to find someone else. And the person you're going to replace could go elsewhere or at least have the time where they're not working for the team to identify what options may be there next year. So Quinn Dimitrov gone. And, you know, I think last year the six and two finish saved both of them after the one and seven start. And, Now, at 0-5, if you know the change is going to be made after the season, go ahead and do it and start making your plans for the future. That's exactly right, Mike. And and that 6-2 finish did save both of them. And and I guess if you're Arthur Blank and you've made that decision, you don't want them to do that again, to go on this run and get things turned around. I say, well, we haven't turned around. This is the third straight year they've started out really slowly and failed to get it going and finished on a high spot. But 2018, they started one and four before they got it going. So this is a team that just just can't seem to get it going early um, under Dan Quinn for whatever reasons. And they have botched the salary cap. They've made so many errors, but I still think it goes back to that Super Bowl. I just don't think they ever recovered from losing in that Super Bowl. And I think it's a mental thing. And I think it's a hard block to get over. Once you lose a lead like that, you just always doubt yourself when you get the lead and teams start coming back. If the team doesn't start coming back, maybe it's a different thing, but teams start coming back on them and they get it in the back of their head. We've given up this lead before. We can do it again. And and you just can't get over that mental hurdle. So I think it goes all the way back to Dan Quinn's second year and they just failed to get over that mental block of losing that huge lead and Super Bowl, frankly, they should have won. Yeah, in contrast, look at how the Seahawks, in what was Dan Quinn's last game, 
in Seattle. Man, Dan Quinn's had a rough decade. The last game in Seattle with the fateful <laughs> yeah. decision to pass, not run, that was something that hovered over the Seahawks, that they eventually had to get rid of all of the players who could no longer accept the decision that was made by the coaching staff, and they've recovered from it. In Atlanta, you have to wonder how far they have to go to get to the point where they truly have reset. On the field, do you have to move on from Julio Jones and Matt Ryan? Earlier today, Rich McKay seemed to suggest there won't be a fire sale unless, of course, somebody makes us an offer that blows us away, which means we're really not desperate to sell, but we'll sell if you make us an offer we can't refuse. Owner Arthur Blank also speaking to the media, sort of. I'll explain in a second what they actually did. Here's Arthur Blank talking about the situation in Atlanta. Here are the issues you would like to see fixed by Coach Morris and the rest of the coaching staff moving forward. Which problems have become the most disturbing for you? Uh, it's called lack of winning. Uh, so the problems we have to solve are all the problems that are ahead of us that keep us from winning. Um, and I'd, I'd add, this is not just a response to a zero and five. It's a response to uh, really uh, almost three and a half years post-Super Bowl. We've been playing less than 500 ball. And so when you look at that many games over a long period of time and you adjust for injuries, which every NFL team has, we just haven't performed at the level that we're capable of. We think our talent is better than, um, you know, than we have the record at this point. Um, and for a variety of reasons, we weren't getting the results that we needed to get. So the time for the change was now. You know, that's an interesting contrast. Can we bring the photo back up of blank and Rich McKay sitting side by side because here's the reality. Rich McKay's been there for 16 years. Rich McKay was essentially fired as that's a great that's a great because he's kind of like I'm minding my own business here. I'm Kermit drinking my tea because as the owner is talking about all the things that have gone wrong, I hope he doesn't realize I've got some responsibility for that. I mean, after the 2007 season, the disaster that had Bobby Petrino, who never should have been hired by the Falcons, McKay hired him. The Mike Vick dogfighting operation, which on McKay's watch, the Falcons were oblivious to. McKay was essentially fired. He was moved over to the business side to take care of building the stadium, a stadium that went grossly over budget. Then about the time they go to the Super Bowl, he slides back into the football side of things. He's the president and CEO. The the new coach and GM will report to him. I don't know. And and look, I'm choosing my words carefully here, but I also am committed to the longstanding approach here at PFT of calling it as we see it. I don't know how you fire Quinn and Dimitrov, Shireen, and keep Rich McKay. Can you help me figure that out? <laughs> uh, no, I really can't. I love Rich McKay going back to our days in Tampa. But, yes, he hasn't gotten it done in Atlanta either. And this is just a franchise that's floundering right now. And, and uh, yeah, he doesn't look like he's going to take uh, anything any hits for what's happened in Atlanta. And I think he deserves some of the blame for what's gone wrong uh, in Atlanta, especially since that Super Bowl and building the stadium, as you pointed out, went over budget. So nothing seems to have gone right in Atlanta. I know Arthur Blank really likes Rich McKay, and obviously he's going to keep him on board as team president. And Rich McKay said he's bringing in one of his other Tampa buddies, Rustin Webster, to help kind of run things on the football upside uh, as they move forward. But this search has begun for this team, and they'll have a new GM and a new coach, and you hope that the GM gets a chance to pick his own coach. It was funny, the press conference they did, and they've been doing these all year. It's not really a press conference. The questions are submitted in advance by reporters to a pool reporter who then asks the questions of the subjects of the press conference. And it's entirely possible that maybe a tough question or two doesn't get asked, like, hey, Rich, or hey, Mr. Blank, why is Rich still employed after all these years and all these things that have gone wrong from time to time over the past 16 years? 16 years is a long time for anyone who has accountability to stay with a team. And I like Rich, but I still have to do my job. And as one person in the league pointed out to me today, it's entirely possible Rich McKay is the original Jack Easterby, which takes us back to what we were talking about a week ago, how Jack Easterby just kind of surfaced. And, you know, Rich McKay was the general manager of the Buccaneers, but he got pushed out by John Gruden. John Gruden wanted his own guy. McKay's out. He crash lands on his feet in Atlanta. 
And then it didn't work out for him as the GM. He crash-landed on his feet as the guy in charge of the stadium. That really didn't work out from a dollars and cents standpoint, and he's crash-landed on his feet back as the president and CEO. And now Arthur Blank wants accountability and consequences, and everybody except Rich McKay is out, and McKay's still going to be there. That's going to limit, potentially, how attractive the job is. McKay said earlier today it's an appealing job. Well, whoever takes those jobs, Shireen, is going to have to report to Rich McKay. He's still there. He's still in charge. And, you know, if you have candidates who are able to go somewhere where there isn't that buffer between them and ownership, maybe those jobs are more attractive than the Falcons job. And this is just being fair with the facts and the circumstances of the situation. Again, Rich McKay is a nice guy, engaging guy. He's done well for himself, clearly. But that that's just an unanswered question as to why he's still there when the others are gone. Yeah, there's so many questions in that Atlanta situation. If you're a GM or a coach and have a chance to go somewhere else, I think you probably choose that. Now, Houston's got its own set of problems. Clearly, there's problems in both places, and that's the reason they've already begun a GM search and are going to begin a coaching search after that. But you look at both of them, the cap space is terrible for both of them for next year. And when I look at that Atlanta roster, there's just not a lot on there that really would appeal to me. I mean, I just see so many holes uh, on this roster with just botched draft after draft after draft when they've tried to reach, especially for offensive linemen that just didn't work out. And uh, they've got some problems there, and it's going to be a long fix. This is not something that's going to happen overnight, that a coach is going to come in and suddenly, magically, everything's going to be good next year. Because I don't think it is. Yeah, their expectation is to win. And McKay pointed back to the experience post-Mike Vick, post-Bobby Petrino. They drafted Matt Ryan with a third-over selection in the draft. And they, they made it to the playoffs right away. Well, I, I don't I, – look, I don't know what a realistic expectation is because Matt Ryan has been around for a long time. Because you've got some guys who are sucking up a lot of salary cap oxygen on that roster. And McKay said there won't be a fire sale. At some point, you have to consider your options because you could easily argue that the presence of a very young Deshaun Watson, relatively speaking, in Houston makes the Texans' job much more attractive than the Falcons' job. But again, in Houston, you've got the Easterby dynamic hovering over the coach and the GM. And in Atlanta, you've got the McKay dynamic hovering over the coach and the GM. And there may be other vacancies out there where the coach and the GM really will be running the show with a straight line directly to the owner without having to worry about somebody in between who manages to avoid accountability when things go sideways. Yeah, and there are going to be other places. And, and if you have those options, I think you're going to choose another place besides those two. So you don't have to answer to Jack Easterby or Rich McKay in the case of Atlanta. And you can go somewhere else and, and maybe it's a little better. And my question would be, I do think the Jets and Giants are worse. I think Atlanta is going to win some games with Raheem Morris. But what if they end up with that first pick? Don't you have to go draft Trevor Lawrence at that point, Mike? I think you do. I think you do. And I'm going to be writing something later tonight that looks at the salary cap ramifications of moving on from Matt Ryan at this point, moving on from Julio Jones. You take a cap hit. You save some money, obviously. Matt Ryan is making $30 million a year on average. Julio Jones is at 22. These are all things that need to be considered. And it's going to be Rich McKay calling the shots the rest of the year as to whether or not these guys get traded. But there will be cap consequences if that happens. All right. Next item, the ever-present coronavirus conversation, how it's affected the NFL schedule. No positive tests for the Patriots or Titans today, which is positive news. Titans still set to play the Bills tomorrow night, which is good, because if Titans-Bills gets postponed, that's the first game that goes to an 18th week, whenever that may be, which who knows at this point, because the NFL is doing their damnedest to not even think about a week 18, hoping that not thinking about it can will it from happening, Shireen, let me tell you this that I heard today. I haven't written it yet at PFT. There was a belief last week in league circles that the league was going to hammer the Titans with unprecedented punishment. One general manager speculated suspensions for the balance of the season for Coach Mike Vrabel and GM John Robinson. $10 million fine. First-round draft pick gone. Again, that was just a guess from somebody who runs one of these franchises. Now there's a vibe that I've picked up on 
that the Titans may ultimately not be punished at all. And I'm trying to harmonize that. And it could be that last week was all about huffing and puffing to help secure the attention of the other 31 franchises. The ultimate, I'm going to turn this car around right now if you don't shut up in the back seat. Something, Shireen, I'm sure both you and I heard back in the 70s when (laughs) we were growing up and being loud in the back seat. But uh, I digress. But um, now there's a thought that because it hasn't happened yet, and it stunned me that it hasn't happened yet. And I thought maybe the NFL is just making sure they get their ducks in a row so they don't get themselves into a bounty scandal or deflate gate type of a situation where someone like me says, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're, you're, you're railroading this team. You're not being fair with the facts. You're misrepresenting what happened. You're trying too hard to justify the punishment. I thought that was the case. Someone very influential in league circles believes that it's just going to all die down. It's going to all go away. And it's never going to be heard from again. And there's so much other stuff going on in the NFL that it's not going to take long to run out the clock on the expectation the Titans are going to get punished. And at the end of the day, Shireen, they may not get punished at all. Mike, John Robinson had a press conference right before we came on the air, too. And he talked about all the changes they made within the organization. Said they have not heard anything on the penalties, as you said, but they've moved 26 lockers into a bubble to try to spread things out. They've done the air filtration system. They've changed that. Uh, He said there were some mask inconsistencies, and they asked what the inconsistencies were, and he said, well, not necessarily wearing it over the nose all the time, getting lax with it, pulling it down, things like that. So they're trying to make these changes, but he said they have not heard of, of any punishment that they're going to get. He says he will hold his breath now. They get their test results sometime between 3.30 and 4.30 a.m., and they hope that they're all negative and they've gotten through this, and tomorrow when they wake up they can play a game and and be on the right side. Now, they're going to be missing a couple coaches who aren't going to be clear. They're going to miss a lot of players. We're already getting some players coming back off the COVID list. They've had this for so long. But they are going to be missing some players as they as they go play. So um, it will be interesting to see if they are punished by the league. I would find it stunning if nothing is done to them. And I do think you need to send some sort of a message that, you know, you you had some problems within your organization that you didn't handle correctly. Here's the fundamental dynamic. And here's the real question. We've already gone over, but I want to be clear on this and as concise as possible. How do you prove that violations that potentially were committed by the Titans and everyone else, right? All you have to do is watch any game and you realize that the compliance with the protocols is far from universal. Case in point, in the protocols that were reissued last week, a clear requirement that in Buffalo and San Francisco, masks must be worn even by players not in the game. Well, watch the game yesterday. Masks weren't being worn for the most part by the players not in the game. So how do you connect the reality that everyone is failing to comply with the letter of the protocols at all times with an outbreak, especially when the positives are coming in in dribs and drabs that you can potentially say there isn't a connection. It's not like everybody sat around a room together with their masks off in a meeting room, elbow to elbow, and all of those guys got it four days later. And I don't know that that happened with the Titans. It could be that just in Nashville, there's a lot of people that have it, and guys are going home and they're getting it. I know the Patriots believe they don't have an outbreak, that they think guys are testing positive through means outside of the facility. So I think before the NFL picks this fight with the Titans, they better be damn sure that they can win it. Because there will be appeal mechanisms. There will be a court of public opinion run by the media saying, wait a minute, NFL, we think you're not being fair here. We think you don't have your case buttoned up. And we think what you're doing to the Titans is unwarranted. And I don't think the NFL wants that sideshow either. That's what's so hard about this virus. As we all know, even people outside the NFL know, you don't know where you got it necessarily all the time. You don't know who you spread it to. They don't know who they spread it to. And this thing just takes off. And 
Yeah, as John Robinson said, we're talking about a little microorganism here that's that's gotten in our building somehow, some way. And, you know, whether it's spreading from player to player or different people are getting at home and coming back and testing positive, who knows? But, yeah, they better be 100% sure if the if and when they penalize the, the Titans. And if they don't, I, hopefully teams have learned their lesson from what the Titans have gone through, that you have to be extra careful. You have to wear your mask properly within the building at all times. You have to do absolutely everything you can for risk mitigation. And sometimes that isn't enough, but you have to do everything you can. And as we're seeing again and again and again, it doesn't always happen like that, Mike. New England Patriots, again, dealing with that issue that caused their week five game between the Patriots and Broncos to be bumped from Sunday to Monday and now to next Sunday. Bill Belichick addressing the possibility of Cam Newton playing when the Patriots are back on the field this weekend. Here he is. Cam Newton fits that criteria, doesn't he? Wouldn't he be eligible to come back on Wednesday, even if he has not had two negative tests 24 hours apart? Uh, yeah, well, whatever the whatever the league protocol is, it is. Um, is that your understanding of what it is, what I just read? Well, but I think there's a little more to it than that. Um, it's testing, it's uh, symptoms, and you know whatever other medical stipulations there are. I'm not I'm not sure exactly. Uh, that's something that our trainers and medical staff uh, would administer. But it, you know that that is a part of it. Yeah, and I think that you know there's there's medical clearance. You know, for that, that's a protocol that's set up by by the league. That's not a team thing. You know, a lot of people think they know what the protocols say and what they don't say. I went back and read through the protocols, asked the NFL some questions about what they meant because they're not nearly clear. For someone who tests positive and is asymptomatic, and frankly, asymptomatic is to a certain extent something that is based on the honor system. If you are truly asymptomatic, 10 days after your positive test, you can come back. You don't have to test negative. And that's one of the things that the media seems to be very confused about as it relates, frankly, currently to the status of the president. You're not going to be negative after you've had it. There may be a period of time where you still test positive, but you're not ill and you're not at risk of spreading it. And that's why the NFL has come up with this 10 days after, if you're asymptomatic, you can come back. And the way it worked out for Cam Newton, he couldn't have played yesterday. He could have played today. They were going to get the benefit of that one day bump if they had played today. So, uh, Shireen, it looks like if he's truly asymptomatic and again, it's largely based on the honor system. Some symptoms you can't hide, some symptoms you can. But if he's truly asymptomatic, he'll be back for next weekend. Yeah, you would expect him to be back and play for the Patriots, and they certainly need him. We saw that in that Chiefs game when they got blown off the field in the second half. And so they'll be happy to have their quarterback back, and he looks like he's going to be back, although Belichick wouldn't come right out and say it today. But it does look like they'll have Cam Newton in the lineup the next time they play. All right, real quickly, because we are already way, way over, and we only have so much show to jam all this information into. Baker Mayfield x-rays negative on his ribs, but he clearly has something that is going to cause him potential discomfort when the biggest game of the season so far for the Browns comes up this weekend in Pittsburgh. Chandler Jones, biceps injury. The Arizona Cardinals pass rusher exploring non-surgical options. There's a fear that he may be out for the year. And Sammy Watkins, Chiefs receiver, he's expected to miss time with a hamstring injury. If you were watching the game yesterday, you saw him grab that area that is so indicative of a hamstring. And the problem with a hamstring, you got to give it time to let it heal because it's going to continue to get injured when you try to turn it up to the highest possible level. And that's what the Chiefs need Watkins to do. So Mecole Hardman becomes presumably a bigger factor in the Chiefs offense moving forward. All right, quick break. When we return, it is our Monday afternoon quarterback session, MPMQM or something like that coming up right after this. How close did you come to kicking the field goal there at the end? Um, not really close. Uh, I knew if we got to, it was about a half a yard if we got.
how close did you come to kicking the field goal there at the end? Um, not really close. Uh, I knew if we got to, it was about a half a yard. If we got to half a yard, we win the game. So I was trying to win it. I told him, I told him in the headset, you know, we didn't come here for this. Let's, let's go win it. MPM QB week five edition. We're going to start with Mike Zimmer, the decision to go for it on fourth and short. If they make it, the game is over. If they don't make it, the game is over. If Russell Wilson and company drive 94 yards for a touchdown, which we know in hindsight they did. Shereen, well, well, I, and, and I'll, I'll be perfectly transparent and candid here because my son was asking me, what should they do? And I said, I really don't know. I really don't know what the right move is. I saw that image of the range, of the rain that was falling. The rain was coming down, and when the rain is coming down and it's so clear you can see it on your TV, you know it's coming down because usually when it's raining, it's like you can't. Isn't that weird how when you're watching a football game and it's obviously raining but you can't see the rain? On those moments when you see the rain, Shireen, that's when uh, you know it's coming down. So I guess, I mean, I was fine with it at the time. But then after the fact, I thought about it, and it's like, man, you know, you, you, you get that field goal. Because if you miss it, you're in the same spot as if you don't convert. You convert, the game's over. You make the field goal, they got to go down and score two touchdowns. They got to score one touchdown, and then they got to convert basically fourth and goal from the two to force overtime. So it's easy to say in hindsight, I would have kicked the field goal. But I, in hindsight, I would have kicked the field goal. I, I get his thinking, Mike. I understand exactly what he thought. Half a yard, they've got to go 94 yards. And I know the analytics people will put out all the percentages. They had 90-some-odd percent chance to win the game. And if they kick the field goal, it doesn't change that. But I don't want to give the ball to Russell Wilson, 94 yards, 99 yards, whatever, with 151 left because – and I know they converted two fourth downs, but I don't like my chances at that point to win the game. I mean, he's just done it too many times. We've seen it. Here's my problem with it. If you have Dalvin Cook, I have no problem making that decision. They didn't have Dalvin Cook. They had Alexander Madison. He picked the wrong hole. He didn't follow C.J. Ham, so they didn't get the yard. So quarterback sneak at that point or kick the field goal. I just didn't like it with Madison not having Dalvin Cook. If Cook was in there, leading rusher, I'm all for it. But considering who your running back was, he had a a good game, but he didn't get the half yard he needed to to win the game. Yeah, there's that image we showed earlier today on PFC Live. You have to squint. You have to look very carefully to see the arrow where the hole was. That uh, (laughs) Gail Sayers in his 18 inches of daylight. Uh, That's about 18 feet of daylight that Alexander Madison had to his right. He just didn't see it. And, and uh, I'm just really torn on this because I like the attitude of going for the win. But empty stadium, right? You don't have to deal with the, the, with the 12s. You don't have to deal with the Richter scale. You don't have to deal with any of that noise. You, you, I'll take my chances in overtime, right? If, if my defense allows them right. to score twice, I'll take my chances in overtime because if I win the coin toss, maybe we drive down the field and score a touchdown just like we did to start the game. Speaking of Dalvin Cook, by the way, Mike Zimmer said today on the MRI that was performed on his injured groin, it went pretty well, so we'll see how he does this week. Now, based upon the Daniel Hunter situation, I'm not going to accept anything Mike Zimmer says at face value when it comes to injuries. He'd rather say nothing at all. Maybe Dalvin Cook gets placed on injury reserve on Wednesday. Maybe he ends up on the injury report. Maybe he practices. Maybe he doesn't. But, you know, with Daniel Hunter, it was called a tweak for so long until they had an obligation to put him on the injury report. And on the first day they would have put him on the injury report, he got put on injury reserve. So Wednesday is going to be a key day for the Vikings injury report. And I won't be surprised if Dalvin Cook ends up on IR, especially since it's only a three-week stay. And Madison had 112 yards rushing last night in his place. Doug Peterson made a decision yesterday to try a 57-yard field goal, which is a long field goal in any stadium. It's even longer at Heinz Field, where the all-time record is 55 yards. It was 31-29 to with fewer than three minutes and 30 seconds left in the game. Here's Doug Peterson on the decision to try the 57-yard field goal that was long enough, just not straight enough, on Sunday. Take us through the uh, the decision to go for the the 57-yard field goal. Kind of what were you going back and forth on on the, the sidelines there? What led to that decision? 
Um, just a, an opportunity. I mean, felt felt comfortable where we were on the field. Obviously, um, yeah, it was a tough situation to be, you know, in that fourth and long situation there, and and um, you know, well within Jake's range uh, to kick the field goal, and and um, yeah, that was it. Yeah, I mean, th- that's fine. Uh, I get it. I understand it. And if it goes through and they go up thirty-two to thirty-one, that's great. But it didn't go through. They gave the Steelers the ball at uh, the Pittsburgh 47, and four plays later, Chase Claypool scores his first, fourth touchdown of the day to make it 38-29, to 29, and that was that. Your thought on, uh, on the decision to try what would have been an all-time record at a stadium that's been open for about 20 years now? Well, it's the second time in, what, three weeks now, Mike, that we're questioning a decision by Doug Peterson. And when they don't go right, this is what we do. And and, and until a field goal the last time in that Bengals game, they ended up putting. Uh, They did line up in that game for a field goal that would have been 59 yards, and then they got the false start and backed it up and decided not to try the field goal or go for it. They punted and settled for the tie in that game. Um, I I didn't like this decision. It didn't work out for him. Obviously, he's kicked one longer than that for a game winner. I know Jake Elliott has a really strong leg. Was a 61? I think he he had the game winner on a few years ago. But he didn't make it. And and in hindsight, I think their best opportunity probably would have been to punt the ball and and live to see another down. Or or go for it on fourth and five. I mean, because at least if you don't – yeah, if you don't make it, you're not giving that's the thing about the field goal. If you miss it, you're giving up seven yards of field position on top of surrendering the ball. Even if you gain yardage, you're you're you know, you're gaining eight yards, nine yards, maybe ten yards if you don't get the first down and you're you're making it harder for Pittsburgh to drive down and and put the game away. All right, one more. Kyle Shanahan making the decision to start Jimmy Garoppolo just a few weeks after suffering a high ankle sprain and then benching him during what became a blowout loss to the Miami Dolphins. Here's Shanahan talking about the benching after Sunday's 43-17 to loss to Miami. I mean, just the way the whole game was going. I mean, just kind of watching how we were playing as a whole, how he was playing. Uh, you could tell that he was affected by his ankle. I mean, uh, you can ask him more when he gets in, but uh, I, I know he doesn't normally throw the ball that way, and uh, I think he was struggling a little bit because of it and the way the game was going that I was going to keep putting him in those positions and knowing we were going to have to throw it a lot to come back. You know, here's the question. Why, why did he even play if he clearly was still bothered by the ankle? And if you go out there and play, you're assessed on your performance. No excuses. We hear that all the time. Next man up, no excuses. If you, if you put on the helmet and you're ready to go, you're ready to go. So, you know, he was benched apparently to protect himself from himself. Maybe he should, never, should have never played in the first place. And it tells me, Shereem, that even though we've believed that Kyle Shanahan feels good about his backups behind Jimmy Garoppolo. We saw what Nick Mullins did last week against the Eagles, where he threw the ball to a wide-open Eagles defender on two occasions. We didn't see a whole lot of C.J. Beathard, but the fact that Shanahan would go with an impaired Garoppolo over a healthy Beathard tells me maybe more than Shanahan wants me to know about how he feels about Beathard and Mullins. No question about it, 100%. You and I sat here talking about injuries on Friday, and we said a high ankle sprain is normally four to six weeks. And we talk about how gutsy that he, Jimmy G was in coming back and playing in that Jets game with the high ankle sprain. And he, and he made it through, and he played relatively well. Look, I realized it was the Jets. But when you look, as you've pointed out a million times, you look at what's around the corner for the San Francisco 49ers. And you see what they've done so far. It was a must-win game, and he thought, Kyle Shanahan thought, that was their best chance to win. A 50% Jimmy Garoppolo was much better than C.J. Beathard or Nick Mullins, and that's why they went with him. And let's, let's look at reality. They've, they've won two games. They were against the Jets and the Giants. This is a team that's been hit really hard by injuries they're not very good, and I think that was their Hail Mary play to win that game and keep their season going and keep their playoff hopes alive. And I think their dash now based on, as you pointed out a million times, and you see it, how hard that schedule gets. 
Rams at Patriots at Seahawks, Packers at Saints at Rams, Bills. Six of the seven games currently slated for major national TV platforms, whether in primetime or at 425 p.m. Eastern. My son and I were reminiscing recently about the original Xbox system because there's new systems coming out. You know, every few years they come out with new systems so they can take more of our money. And there was a phenomenon with the original Xbox 360 called the Red Rings of Death. And every time I see those seven games, I think Red Rings of Death for the 49ers. Because yeah, remember last year they had three games that we saw on the schedule in November. And it was Packers at Ravens at Saints. And we were like, ooh, you know, this is times two plus one. And this team isn't nearly as good as last year's team. And I'm not smiling because I'm amused by it, although I think I am. But, man, at 2-3 and and embarking on this stretch, what are they going to be on the other end of it? Are they going to be 2-10? and It's entirely possible. Entirely possible that they could be 2-10. and I don't see a lot of wins in there. They're not getting Nick Bosa back. I mean, he's got so many injuries. I I just don't think this team is going to win very many games. I think they slip up and, and win one of them somewhere. Some team slips up and they win one somewhere, but I couldn't tell you who it is because they're not going to be favored in any of these games. Yeah, I agree with you, and we'll see how it plays out. Starting on Sunday night on NBC when the 49ers host the Los Angeles Rams, who are 4-1 and one and who have looked very good so far this season. Quick break. When we return, a little mailbag and a little preview for the Monday night game between the Chargers and the Saints. We'll be back with more PFTPM right after this. There's your weekday lineup on the NBC Sports Channel on Peacock, which, as you know, because you currently are watching on Peacock, has plenty of stuff other than sports, plenty of great shows and movies, and I'm told the entire Harry Potter collection for the full month of October. All right, let's get to the mailbag at On Tour Forever. The 49ers can get away from Jimmy G after this year with little cap consequence. Do you see them going for a new quarterback in 2021? Let me take this one first, Shireen, and in a word, Yes, I do. Well, that's actually three. What do you think? <laughs> uh, well, you just talked about them being 2-10, and ten, right? Possibility of that. This could be one of the worst teams in the NFL. This could be a top five pick team. And if there's a quarterback sitting there, I'm doing it. Whenever you make a quarterback change, you better be assured that the guy that you're replacing him with is better. Now, maybe Dak Prescott comes on the market, as we've talked about. Maybe there's some guys out there. But I think this is a team that could draft a young quarterback, maybe groom him for a year behind Jimmy G, uh, not go the veteran route because they will have that high pick and and get him ready to go and have a new franchise quarterback coming up. Or, Or trade for Kirk Cousins, which I think is entirely possible, you know, One of the reasons why the 49ers didn't take a careful look at quarterbacks in 2017 when they could have had Patrick Mahomes or Deshaun Watson, Kyle Shanahan thought he was getting Kirk Cousins after the 2017 season. And it was the Jimmy Garoppolo trade that Shanahan initially didn't want any part of that threw a wrench into that plan. Well, now Cousins under contract two more years in Minnesota, depending upon what happens with the Vikings this year, and they're currently one and four, they may decide that the time has come to move on from Kirk Cousins, and depending upon what the 49ers would offer to take that contract off their hands, and the Vikings would end up taking a cap charge, and it would be not an inexpensive cap charge, because I think they gave him a $30 million signing bonus this year, which would cause a $20 million cap charge for next year, regardless if they have the opportunity to trade him, and if Shanahan has the opportunity to get him, there's been a sense that they're destined to reunite, and I could see Kyle Shanahan doing that. All right, at AJ. Mu 9, AFC North replaced the NFC West as the best division in football. You know, I, I hate to concede that point so early in the season, but look at where we are after f- five weeks. The Ravens, 4-1. and one. The Steelers, 4-0. and oh. The Browns, 4-1. and one. The Bengals, a dangerous 1-3-1, and one, although they weren't very dangerous on Sunday against the Ravens. And you look at the 49ers at 2-3 and three and the Falcons, or the, the Cardinals, excuse me, they haven't been great since they started 2-0. Yes, the Seahawks are 5-0 and and the Rams are 4-1, and but maybe top to bottom? I don't know. Could we make the argument top to bottom the AFC North is better? Hey, you've come over to my side. We did this on PFT Live a few weeks ago before the season started, and I 
picked the AFC North because I thought the Steelers would be back, be back with uh, Big Ben, and I thought the Browns would be better with another year with Baker Mayfield being able to run the football, and I thought the Bengals would be better with Joe Burrow. So I've been on this bandwagon for a long time now. I do think it's the best division in football. Look, the, the NFC West is good, but I just think top to bottom this is a better division. Yeah, and uh, it's going to be quite a fight for a team like the Browns at 4-1 and one to get to the top of the division. Uh, but they are definitely in position for a playoff berth. Look at their schedule. Where they are right now at 4-1, and one, they should win 10 or 11 games this year. And uh, 10 or 11 should get you in in a 17 playoff field. All right, the Saints trying to get to 3-2 and two, and in a three-way tie atop the NFC South with the Panthers of all teams and the Buccaneers tonight. Chargers coming to town. Chargers haven't gotten the wins. But we get a chance to watch Justin Herbert, coast-to-coast, prime time, a guy who has been every bit as good as Joe Burrow, and if not better, at times, after being thrust into service a few weeks back, Shereen. I love to watch Justin Herbert, and I think he's been fantastic. I think he's been even better than Joe Burrow. Of course, I think he has probably a little bit better weapons out there, especially when you saw what A.J. Green did yesterday. Just looked abysmal in that, and probably time to move on from him. But I'm excited to see Justin Herbert again because I think he takes a step every game. Now, we're still seeing some of those rookie mistakes with the interceptions, but I just think he's been fantastic, and it's going to be fun to watch him go against the the mastermind of Sean Payton on the other side. It may be a, a shootout. Yeah, and Herbert has the size, the strength, the speed, the moves, the brains, the arm strength, and it's just a matter of him getting the reps and getting the experience and getting to the point where he can make the good decisions at the right time and the wins will come. But think about that division in the coming years. Now that the Chargers have found their quarterback, the Chiefs clearly have theirs. We'll see what Drew Locke becomes. And Derek Carr after yesterday. i got to give Derek Carr some more props. I've been as critical of Derek Carr as anyone. But finally unleashing the deep ball, throwing the ball down the field, taking full advantage of Henry Ruggs. They drafted him for that purpose to draw that deep ball out of Derek Carr, and it worked. And, Shereen, the Raiders all of a sudden are making the AFC West interesting. Al Davis would love Henry Ruggs, wouldn't he? Because they did get the ball down the field, and it was he was fantastic. Had the 72-yard touchdown. Derek Carr outplayed Patrick Mahomes. Simple as that. That's why they won the game. And Derek Carr gets a week off, and then a visit from Tom Brady the all-time GOAT. He already took down the best quarterback currently in the game. He gets a shot at Brady in a couple of weeks. That's on Sunday Night Football in 13 days. Plenty to still come before then. PFT Live, PFTPM, ProFootballTalk.com. Enjoy Saints Chargers tonight. We'll see you bright and early in the morning right here on Peacock for Pro Football Talk Live. Have a great evening. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.